So many of us are lost in a frantic round of activity. The message is go, go, go. But go where? What does it take for us to stop? To take a moment to consider the reason for all our hurry? Well, how about a skiing accident at 160 kilometres per hour? Would that do the trick? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, how you doing? It's great to be here for another week of Signs of the Times Radio. I'm on Zoom with Iona Rossley from up in the, right up in the northeastern corner of New South Wales, up there in the beautiful lush regions up there. How are you, Iona? I'm fine. Um, it's got a beautiful day today and I think we've got rain coming tomorrow. So, yep. Yep, excellent. Well, I, I'm I'm actually um, in sort of lockdown at home. I had a bit of a sniffle and a sneeze the other day, so I thought I should probably go and get a COVID test. So I'm waiting for the result now and stuck at home. I guess that's a pretty common experience for a lot of people <laughs> this time of year, getting a, a bit cooler. Um, but one thing I did recently, Iona, I, I read your, your book, Racing on Empty, which you brought out earlier this year, mm-hmm. checked out your website, ionarossley.com, I think yeah, it is. It, yeah. And yeah, lots of really interesting features there and I just love your story so much I thought we've got to run an account of your life you know in Signs of the Times magazine for September so we've done that so yeah we certainly encourage our listeners to you know to check that out on our website signsofthetimes.org.au or subscribe to the magazine even better and get the full pictures and the layout and, and everything like that but I guess what we can do here, Iona, is a bit bit of a cheat for people who haven't read the article or, or read your book, but hopefully as they listen to you, you know, share some of your story, the desire will be there, hey, I want to know more, I, I want to read this. I've had a really jam-packed life of being blessed, but obviously we've had some... Um some good points and some bad points, so it's been a journey. I really get the picture that from a very young age it became quite clear that you're a, quite a high-energy person. Would would that be a correct assumption? Yeah, I'm not very good at sitting down for long periods of time. I need to exercise, otherwise I, I think I, I would go crazy, and that's part of who I am. My husband calls me a, a hamster on a wheel. Okay. Um, I just don't stop. except you really got somewhere i mean unlike that hamster i mean you got a lot of really amazing places i mean you you started off i think we could probably frankly say as a a fairly naughty child (laughs) but that energy sort of ended up in sports you know outdoor pursuits and and that sort of stuff which must have been fantastic actually it's interesting you say that because i've just started writing a little bit about my early childhood which is not in the book I think it starts when I'm 11, when I get plonked in a convent school, which didn't sit very well with me. I was very shy when I was small. I mean, extremely shy. And if anyone spoke to me, I'd just go bright red or or I'd hide behind my mum. And I also had a stutter. And I was terrified of my father. So I was the eldest of four girls. So when my parents put me into convent school, it's like me going into the lion's den. I was so timid, so shy, and the first six months were awful. And then I realized that I was 
good at sport I'm, and I excelled in netball and running and then horse riding and then I went skiing which is comes a bit later mm. and that's my identity came from sports so it changed my personality totally everyone's looking for recognition and success and I latched onto that 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 was me that's who I was and my shyness I unfortunately went from being a very shy petite little thing to a very loud probably obnoxious rude naughty and my poor parents I mean they tried to expel me so many times but money speaks louder than words <laughs> my father used to talk them out of it so it threatened to take the others and they didn't really want all of us to go so I managed to stay until my O levels and then I was let loose on the world <laughs> that's that that's equivalent to year 10 isn't it yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah. wow let, let loose on the world and and it certainly sounds like you you did you know all this energy I mean it's it's interesting like with sports I guess, you know, every kid needs to find their niche, don't they? You know, every kid needs to find the answer to the question, you know, why am I special? How am I unique? And it seems that, you know, you've found that in sports. But in what you've written, you suggest that there was a darker side to that. There was this urge, this this push sort of in your mind that, that told you that you had to be the best. And if you weren't the best, you weren't good enough in, in some way. Yeah, and I, I think the world almost tells you that. It's almost like second and third are not, that's not, you know, it, it's for me it wasn't just the competing, it was the winning. Mm. And then my father, you know, bless, bless him, he was very Scottish. Our whole household was, you know, we were brought up as a, in a very military-style environment. And he'd say, look, you've got two arms, two legs and a brain. And he said, you can do whatever you want. And I think it, it, for me, it was, it was like I, I wanted his approval. It started with him, but then it went onto something else. And then it, it just became an inbuilt thing that, you know, you had to win at everything. I actually wouldn't do a sport unless I was going to be really good at it. I oh, wouldn't. wow. So it was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to make a fool of myself. I'm good at this. And this is where I – and it, it was – I think I realized that if I took the risk that no one else would take and doing that little bit extra, you could win. So, and I have that, I suppose it's like a A-type personality where you, you end up with no friends. You mm. It's all about you and ugh, that's definitely the wrong way to go. Mm. So, so there's there's a little bit of adrenaline junkie there by by the sound of it, but that that drivenness, yeah, to the point where it drives you away from friends, that that becomes a little problematic, I guess, doesn't it? It, it could be quite lonely, I imagine. It it is lonely, but it's I don't know the drive I had in me to be somebody just overshadowed everything else, including what my parents thought. I mean, they were devastated when. I walked halfway out of a, a BA course in fine art to become a ski instructor. They just didn't quite see the logic, and I can understand that. And I was like, no, this is not what I want to do. I know what I want to do. I want to ski, and I know I'm going to be good at it, and that's where I'm going. And, yeah, a very tunnel vision about me and me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I actually have friends whose daughter, you know, wants to run away to Canada and be a ski instructor, and and we're just like, well, yeah, that sounds like fun, but you know, it's a it's a bit of a party scene, you know, this uh, you know, you sort of ski all day and party all night, and a lot of alcohol, you know, a lot of young people at a loose end, a, a long way from town, with you know, nothing much to do apart from get up to mischief. Was was that the the case in your yeah. in, in the <laughs> environment you're in? Yeah. Uh, yes, big time. I'd say for the first three years of being a ski instructor, it was just one big party. It was seriously one big party. And you get put on a pedestal when you're, when you're a ski instructor, and that's probably not healthy. And you, you end up in this oh cycle of glamour. I, I think I maybe had like two to three hours sleep a night. I was skiing all day and teaching and then partying. It was, you know, as you said, it was a lot of alcohol, a lot of eating, drinking, having a good time. And then you crash for a part of the summer because you'd be exhausted. And then I ended up um, teaching water skiing and windsurfing. So it, then it ended up all year round. Mm. And it, yeah, you just keep going. Do you know, it's saying that when I was on this roller coaster life, I really did feel that there had to be more. You know, I think from the age of seven, I don't know why seven sticks out, but I remember we used to wake up at night thinking, what's the point? What is the point of living and then dying and ending six foot under? And I'd be also, I think it was a time when I was aware that my parents one day would die. And mm. a seven-year-old thinking that I used to cry myself to sleep. I hope other people do this. I hope it just wasn't me. I don't know. And I... I think there has to be more. So I think I've always had this seeking pilgrim adventure, wanting to know more and why. Why why are we here? So while all this was going, it's still in the back of my mind and it, it was always there thinking there's got to be more. But I never really stopped to actually say, how can I find out more? Because mm. I, couldn't, I couldn't get off the roller coaster. Yeah, you, you titled your book, Iona racing on empty mm. and i just thought that was a, a really powerful phrase that you know really captures this sort of frantic frenetic activity that that your life you know was involved in at that stage of your life and i guess ongoing but this sense of emptiness at, at the same time yeah it's a a, a really powerful phrase did, did you have a sense of, of emptiness or, or was it yeah. or, or did you sort of try to fill your days with so much activity there was never sort of time to reflect on it uh, I think the emptiness came when I started competing professionally as a speed skier. I think I'd felt it before, but not so much. I think once I stepped into that professional angle where you are sponsored by um, Alfa Romeo, Smirnoff Vodka, even though I don't drink vodka <laughs> and I don't, definitely didn't drink and drive, you know, you had a lot of pressure to do well. And the speed skiing, I just love the speed skiing. And I did well from day one. And it was, you know, you'd wake up the next morning after doing really well in a race. And I, I, I was expecting to wake up and feel different. But it was mm. almost like I woke up with this emptiness, a bigger emptiness in my heart or my soul, thinking I should feel different and I don't feel different. You know, mm. I've just won the race. Why don't I feel different? And, and I, I think I, because I knew that I had to start immediately getting prepared for the next race. 
And so you just don't stop because, you know, you're only as good as your last race and there's always other people snapping at your heels to win titles. And I think that was the build-up and the, the, the weight training, the running, that we did lots of mental visualization and meditation for sports. You know, to travel at 160 kilometers an hour, you really mentally, you need to be totally focused. Mm. So it was a really dedicated life, you know. And I, I obviously moved away from my partying and I took this really seriously. The seriousness, I think, was more that when I woke up in the mornings, I'm going, no, this is, there's got to be, there really now has to be more because, you know, yeah. I'm pushing myself to extremes and I want to feel different and I don't. Yeah, yeah. What, what you're saying really reminds me of something, you know, that Jesus said, you know, he said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? And it sounds like in, in a lot of ways, you, uh, you know, you were achieving, you were, what were you, a British overseas champion, you know, in, in speed skiing and all these awards and things like that. But that emptiness, you know, what, what's going on at a, at a soul level. So just mm-hmm. speed skiing, just, just help, help us visualize that, that a little bit. This involves basically going downhill as fast as you can like no slalom not not just straight down it's straight down it, there is no turning it literally is probably like jumping out of a block of flats not that i would recommend people to do that obviously but that's <laughs> what it, it there slopes about 45 degree drop so when you, your skis are two meters long and you wear the dark vader helmets and fairings and you've got a, a lycra ski suit on so it really is the fastest skier down a track of about a kilometer so it literally is when you go over 160 kilometers an hour you hydrofoil so you're actually not even touching the snow so oh, really there's there's a sort of a, a layer of air underneath your skis oh. at that point wow yeah. And it's very, I loved it because it's, it, it's physical, but it's also a mental sport. On the way down, if you had one negative thought, that negative thought would cause a muscle on your body to tense and you'd be gone. You'd be, and wow. you don't want to fall in speed skiing. Yeah. <laughs> no. One reason why it never got through to the Olympic Games because of the, you know, the deaths and, yeah. but, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and reading in, in your book where you, you describe a competition that was coming up in, in France and that was on, you know, one of the, the first sort of speed ski slopes that you tried. It was a bit, a bit of a, a notorious one. And just listening to your description, it almost sounded like perhaps you didn't check one of your bindings maybe as carefully as, as you should have. And that ski came off at, at 160 k's an hour yeah so i my tech actually my technician had flu ah so he never arrived at the start of the race and i was like mm, this is not good but i'm sure they'll be fine very not normally blase. she'll be right mate yeah <laughs> that's just right. what you want to want to say at 100 miles an hour <laughs> first thing you do so it, i actually I had done one run, and it was a qualifier for the World Championships, and then we were climbing up even higher. And as I started off, you're down a very, very steep gully, and all I remember was suddenly I'm actually skiing on one ski, and it just came off. So I'm like, what? So, I mean, 
I suppose the normal thing would have been to just to, to, to fall, and but I thought, no, I'm not having this. So I, at 160 kilometres an hour, I put my right heel down, which is the ski that come off, right heel down, and it shattered my whole leg in up to about nine places all the way up the leg. So, and which, then I, which, which ironically was lucky because you could have easily died in that crash. The, the last person who fell in that place had died. Yeah. So on the, you know, on the, on the way down, I mean, I fell for a kilometre, went through the speed trap at 160 kilometres an hour. In, um, in, in, a, what, in a fallen, rolling sort oh, of it, it was like being in a tumble dryer or washing machine. And I, it, for me, it was all in slow motion. And my, my, on the way down, I was like, I'm finished, I'm dead. This is it. End of story. The, the only thing I thought of was who's going to look after my dog. That really just showed you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, you're, you're still nuts about your animals, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> So, but it was just everything was in slow motion, but it wasn't. It, you know, it was over in an instant, and and I actually couldn't believe I was still alive because I remember vaguely sitting up and bre- taking a breath in, going, "I'm alive. This is unbelievable." And then looking at my leg, realizing it was not there really, and then I passed out. I was yeah, but during the fall, it was. Bizarre. I mean, I, then I didn't know who God was. I, I ran away from anything religious for, because of my convent upbringing mm. with boarding school. But I really felt on the way down, it's amazing what you can think of and going through your mind in, in just, just seconds, is that God was holding me and he, there was a divine presence there. And I had no idea why, when, where, because I didn't know who he was. But... Yeah, so my my accident was just well, I was just blessed to be alive. Really, mm. the surgeons were amazed. I had an eight-hour operation. They put my leg back together again with metal plates and twenty-eight screws, and yeah. So then I became the bionic woman, and I mm. think I'm still the fastest lady on my bottom, <laughs> sixty kilometers an hour, which is not a title I really want to. To go with but you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> and so of course at that point you gave up the adrenaline and took up crochet uh, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> No, and, and this is the incredible thing about you. Like, it, you know, with, with, within, you know, a matter of months or, or a few years, you're wondering, hmm, maybe I can be a jockey <laughs> and, and discovering that a, a, a leg, you know, pinned in, what was it, eight or nine places or, or, or whatever doesn't agree with being up in, in a jockey's stirrup. Yeah. But, but nevertheless, endurance riding and then travel to the Middle East and, mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. I mean, the hamster wheel, I guess, you know, kept, kept turning in, in a lot of ways. I mean, for some people, that sort of crash might have been an opportunity to really think and to say, what am I doing with my life? And maybe God kept me alive and to sort of have some snap conversion. I mean, you are a Christian today, yeah. but it, it wasn't a snap conversion. It seems like through all your life, God has been gently sort of speaking to you and, and, and leading you. And, and you've come to faith like through all the ups and downs. I mean, you've dealt with cancer. You've, you know, you've had people close to you die. You've had a marriage breakup and, you know, and a, and a new marriage, you know, with the husband you're with now. Sorry, I'm sort of fast forwarding <laughs> because there, your life has been so full. You've got to read the book, people. I'm telling you, it's, it's incredible. But 
just tell us how God continued to speak to you and, and what actually finally brought you to your knees? Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, I did get a glimpse of who Jesus was when I was recovering from my skiing accident in Cyprus. But, you know, I just couldn't let go of my identity in sports. And I, I, I was so worried that I'd become a Christian clone <laughs> where Jesus would take away my personality. He would not allow me to do any of the good stuff and I'd just be, you know, it'd just be do's and don'ts. And I really believe that. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So, yeah, I went jockeying. Then I, then I got into the Irish equestrian team with long-distance racing. And in all this, I was searching. I've tried everything. I've been tried Buddhism, Reiki, crystals, tarot reading, and everything because I still had that seeking, why are we here? Mm. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And... God, you know, I walked, I actually walked away from Jesus when I, I did meet him in Cyprus. And it was, I just walked away. I was like, no, I don't trust you. I, I just don't trust you with my life. And then I met a Christian couple in France and we moved our horses and our equestrian operation to France. Met the most amazing Christian couple who lived and breathed Jesus in everything. And they were just so loving and they were also horsey people. So God had it all wrapped up. We were like, so they're so amazing. So I did a little bit of the alpha course. I learned all the basics. And there was a lot of tradition and ritual that had been instilled in me. That, and it's not even in scripture. So mm. I was beginning the doors and the, the, sh- the shadow over my eyes was being opened. I was like, wow. So if you'd asked me then if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. God stepped in and showed me that I wasn't because I, you know, I went through this thing. Okay, you go to church, you, you, you read the Bible, you pray, you know, you just do, you know, you tick all the boxes. And God was really important to me. And I was racing all over the world in my horses. I was doing the world championships, the Europeans, the World Equestrian Games. And I was just like, God was there, like like a partner. This is good. This is life at its best. I've got God. I know why I'm here. And he didn't turn me into a clone. It was it was just really, but I just felt that I was missing something. I needed to go one step deeper. And I kept praying, saying, there's got to be more because I, there's something that's not quite right. And then just before a very big race, one of my horses got seriously ill I was at the race Mm. and I'd never not qualified as one of the top six riders for Ireland to race I think we were it was the world equestrian games in America and 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 for a girl who grew up with the message if if you're not the best you're nothing that that would have been pretty devastating it was it was really and I think if you're not competitive you, you might find what I did next rather weird but I I totally lost it I was so angry. I called my husband, Jeff, and Terry and Sylvie, and I was ranting and screaming. And it was, I said to God, you, you just walked away from me. How can you just walk away from me and do this to me? When we were planning to go to America, and you know, it was all about me, me, me. I didn't really see that. And then I got okay. back to France with my horse, who, you know, blessing, she was fine. And I was just so angry, and I felt so gutted. And I remember just lying awake at night, I, was saying, I couldn't even speak to God. I just felt like he'd just left. 
And I remember walking down the stairs into the kitchen in, in our in our French house, and I saw the Bible opened in my do list. I always have a do list. It was like Jesus walked in the kitchen, and it, it just suddenly hit me. <laughs> it just suddenly hit me that it was all about me, and God had never ever left me. Jesus had never left me. I had left him. Mm, but in in that moment, you had a really strong sense of his presence, like right there with you. Yeah, and it was just so overwhelming. I just dropped to my knees and I cried, but there were tears of joy. And it was that day that my life turned inside out and upside down because it was that day that I let go of the reins, which sounds a bit corny because you ride horses with reins, but it was, <laughs> that was the day that I let go. And it was like in an instant, I said, I don't want to live my life anymore the way I've done it because it's wrong. And I know you love me and you never abandoned me. And I don't want to run my life anymore. And as soon as you, it was amazing. As soon as I, I just committed that deep in my soul, it was like chains fell off my ankles and wrists. And I, I've been, I felt like I'm always carrying so much on my shoulders, trying to be somebody I wasn't. And it's all about this, identity that I created for myself in sports and I got to do this and I got it and it was like it vanished it Mm. had this total sense of absolute freedom that I have never ever felt before and it was just so overwhelming but also just an overwhelming sense of peace Mm. and love a love I couldn't even describe and do you know, I, I, was so ha- I was so happy. I was just like, I don't care what people think. I don't, I, I do, but I, I'm thinking, I don't have to do this. I don't have to race. I don't have to spend seven hours a day training a horse to win a race. And I, I remember calling my husband, who was in, Jeff, who was in Bahrain. And the last time he'd spoken to me, I was not a happy bunny. I was shouting <laughs> and screaming. And I was going, I've made a decision. I really want to go to Bible college. And it just went really quiet. <laughs> that was out of the blue. <laughs> I was like, he has another heart attack. He says, you need to think about this. I'll call you back. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, my whole life from that day changed. Wow, wow. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say, Iona, that you were worried that, you know, God would make you a clone if you fully committed to him. But mm-hmm. even though it, it sounds like you lost this sort of unhealthy, you know, obsession with, you know, winning and being the best and, and competition, I mean, you, you're still nuts about your horses and, and yeah. you're, you're still a high-energy person. Yeah. It seems like, you know, God created you that, that way and he created you that way for a reason. Mm. And I'm really competitive, and he doesn't take that away from you. He actually, when I mean, he gives us our personality, so when you let go, he actually adds more to you than mm. you ever imagine. Mm. And he also puts you in positions that you think you would never be able to do that. And he said, no, you can do this. This thing about being a clone, I think a lot of people think that way. And, uh, and it's sad because, you know, we're all very unique. And I think when it, we live in a world of comparison, so we're all saying, I want to be like that person. I want to be like that person. And God's saying, wow, I made you so unique for this road, for this pathway. And, you know, what you do will be, no one else is going to do what you do. And I really felt that, you know, everyone says, oh, but you, and I, I listen, I still 
I'm not an angel, far from it. And I, and I, <laughs> I, know, I know sometimes he looks down and I said, my biggest challenge is myself because I am A-driven. And sometimes I pick up on a project and I run with it and I hit a brick wall and I go, well, God, what happened? And he said, well, I only did do that on your own. You didn't do it with me. So I've learned I have to pray into all the details of my life and the really small little things. As I am that, you know, it's very easy to wake up in the morning and just go and, you know, on your hamster on a wheel. But, you know, I wake, wake up in the morning at five. I'm very disciplined. The first thing I do is open the Bible. I pray and, you know, I spend an hour at Jesus's feet. I listen. I pray about my, you know, surrender. It's a, for me, it's a daily surrendering. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to get sucked back into the, our worldly values and principles. And as soon as you refocus back on to Jesus every morning, it's, it sets you up for the whole day. The identity thing is big in our world, and we all want to know, but we all have an identity in Jesus, you know, and we are unique, and our journeys are all going to be so different, but so amazing. So. Wow. No, that's incredible. Hey, thanks so much, Iona, for taking the time to uh, share your story with us. I really, really appreciate you you doing that. And yeah, I do totally recommend to our our listeners, visit Iona's website. That's Iona Rossley. That's uh, Ross, E-L-Y, just in case you're wondering how to spell that. S-S-E-L-Y, yeah. Yeah, that's, yep, .com, IonaRossley.com. And uh, check that out and you'll be able to also order her book there, Racing on Empty, which is great. But yeah, we'd love you to read Iona's article in Signs of the Times magazine too. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Iona, this week. Look after yourself. In, enjoy the farm, the, the horses and, and, and the dogs. Yeah, may, may God continue to bless your life. Yes, and you. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.